Extreme poverty has been on the run. It's going to find dark places like Afghanistan, South Sudan. There will be no wall tall enough to prevent a parent's loot for a future for their children. War, poverty, famine, drought, violence. Only some of the heartbreaking tragedies facing us, but it's the children who suffer the most. The United Nations reports 17 million children have lost their homes and been internally displaced due to conflict and violence. Today on Context, speaking up for vulnerable children. How can we help children who are up against the odds from the very beginning? Well, the numbers are shocking. 52% of children in Canada who live in foster care are Indigenous. That despite making up only 8% of the population. The federal government is tackling the problem in part by making Bill C-92 new legislation which gives First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities full jurisdiction over their child welfare. And here to help us explain what this means is Tarina Hunt. Uh, Tarina, a former social worker, help us understand what we're looking at with Bill C-92. Bill C-92 is a legislation proposed by the Government of Canada in response to the overrepresentation of our Indigenous children in the foster care system. While appreciative of the fact that they are moving towards reconciliation and giving us the power and control over our own children, I do think that there are gaps. I think there needs to be more consultation and that we as Indigenous people in Canada need to be more involved in this bill and how it's enacted. All right, so what is that, what is that risk if we don't get this right already, such high rates in, in care? Exactly. There are uh, numerous acts involving Indigenous people in Canada since the time of contact. So I'm a little bit concerned that this is just yet another act that they are going to um, try to meet the needs of our people without the consultation. I don't want to see us go through amendment after amendment given that it's talking about our children, we need to get it right the first time. And what would that look like? What does getting it right look like? I think that it's mainly consulting with the people who are affected by it. If you are far away from the child welfare system, you don't understand it um, and its effects on you as an individual and a family. So I think that the consultation process needs to start with the children and the families that are involved in the system now and historically. Okay, Murray Sinclair, our um, great voice for reconciliation uh, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. He actually describes what's going on right now in the child welfare system as the new monster of residential schools. Can we stop it? Can it be, can this great number of children who are Indigenous being in, in care be stopped? I think that it would be difficult to eradicate the numbers completely. Um, I do believe that there are, we need to remember that there are situations in which children need to be protected. Uh, however, I think that we need to do more as First Nations people as well to be a part of taking care of things for the children. Um, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think that the recommendations that come out of that are excellent, but again, I want to divert back to giving a voice to the children and families that are involved in the system. Tarina, when you uh, work with families, 
what are the best of situations that are coming from our Aboriginal families that should be repeated coast to coast? I think cultural practice is key. I think that it's a term that's often used but uh, not fully understood in a comprehensive manner. As First Nations people, we have a very um, complex system to our culture. So cultural practices need to be more um, deep um, rather than it just being what is easy to see. We need to go a little bit deeper and talk about the healing and the manner in which our people respond to um, programs and services. All right, Tarina Hunt, thank you. Formerly with the Vancouver Aboriginal Children and Family Services Society, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's, it's our duty as, as those who are more privileged to support the most vulnerable people. Protecting our children doesn't just begin at home. We all have a responsibility wherever possible for the well-being of children. And few organizations do this as well as World Vision and their CEO, Michael Messenger, has just returned from Afghanistan, one of the most dangerous places for children to live. Michael, tell us what you've seen. Well, Afghanistan is a perfect example of where some of the most vulnerable children in the world are living today. You know, I've been at working with World Vision for a long time. I started in 1990. We can look at, at the world and say that the world is a lot better for those who are suffering from extreme poverty. But extreme poverty has been on the run. It's going to find dark places like Afghanistan, South Sudan, yeah, other places to hide. that's fascinating that the evil extreme poverty, it, it's... It finds places to run, and your job now in your new profile on Fragile Context is go for the most vulnerable of children. What conditions did you see those Afghan children in? Well, in Afghanistan is a great example of what uh, children are affected by. You know, it, it, this is a country that has been on the knife edge of survival, knife edge between the ability to build a new future in peace and conflict. Forty years of war, Lorna, in, in this context. And that just makes everything worse. And if you're the most vulnerable in society, usually a child, in Afghanistan especially a girl, it's even more significant. So we saw kids who are affected by ongoing cultural practices like child marriage, okay, so you which did, is really uh, Okay, so terrible. we're talking about vulnerable children this episode. Forced child marriages are part of life for young Afghani girls. Tell us about the progress to end a forced marriage and and explain it's it, that's just marriage is just the wrong word for it but explain just how negative it is on a child's life yeah you know globally one in seven girls between the ages of 15 and 19 is in in some form of marriage and there's something like 700 million women today alive who were married younger than than that age if you can believe it and in afghanistan it's particularly in the western part where we were this ongoing cultural practice of girls being married as young as 11 years old Despite global campaigns and national campaigns in Afghanistan, we're seeing a rise because of economic pressures. The reason is that girls represent, on one hand, for a family that's, that's poor, uh, another mouth to feed, but also they get a, a bride price of a couple of thousand dollars if they can sell, essentially, mm. their, their girls. 
girls' rights are so diminished in some parts of this part, part of the, this country that, that girls are then married off and as young as 11. I'm conscious that we are saying this from our culture. What does the other culture say when you bring an idea of liberation to children? Well, it's important to recognize that it's against the law in Afghanistan as well. Oh. So even though it's too young in my view, 16 is the legal age, it's these cultural practices. And what's really fascinating is that World Vision has helped convene conversations with faith leaders, Muslim imams, who are coming together and realizing that the message that somehow their faith allows child marriage is actually not according to their holy scriptures and, and making that message. So we actually have been working in partnership with faith groups there to spread the message through Friday services, through other areas of, of, of engagement where we can get this message across. And because we're a faith-based organization ourselves, it's really resonating. So that's one way to kind of chip away at these cultural practices. It's not World Vision bringing these messages. It's allowing local Afghanis, civil leaders, government leaders, and faith leaders to say that this is not right. Our girls deserve something more. Okay, well, we're going to continue this conversation with you, Michael, for an update on Mozambique, where the follow-up from Cyclone E-Day is still an ongoing process. We'll be right back. Well, worldwide, nearly 31 million children have been forcibly displaced from their homes, and this number includes 13 million child refugees. Maya Averbuch is a journalist who's been covering the migrant border crisis at the U.S.-Mexican border. Maya, our hearts were touched by that three-year-old found in the middle of the night at the border with his name and phone number written on his shoes. Why are parents uh, putting children at risk like this at crossings? I think every parent is making a decision, whether they are asking someone else to bring their child, paying someone else to bring their child, or traveling with their child themselves, um, about how to have the best outcome for their family. How is it that they're going to best provide for that child? How is it that they're going to give them schooling? How is it that they're going to be able to feed them? And the system, in, as it is in place now, um, is one that is shifting. So instead of seeing uh, single adults migrating, as we did for many years. In the last five years, it's become increasingly common to see families coming, and at different points to see people um, who are still minors, who are perhaps teenagers, but in some cases as young as that three-year-old child, coming on their own. And it's a decision that family is making over how to best protect their child. Okay, so um, obviously, anxious one. You've been reporting on exactly these families. Uh, tell us about the psychological effects children are going through while their lives are uprooted on the refugee highway. Well, I think for the first part, we have to understand the context that these kids are coming from, right? These are kids who are, in many cases, coming from very violent neighborhoods or very poor families um, who might not have the educational opportunities in countries like Guatemala or Honduras that they would in the U.S. And so are already coming from those sort of difficult circumstances, which is why their families decide to migrate. Um, that said, whether someone is traveling in a trailer or a bus all through Mexico or whether they're trying to walk or trying to travel on other caravans, for children this means that they're experiencing a rapid shift in terms of what they're eating, they get sick, um, they 
are ending up in environments where they might not speak their language, whether they're indigenous language speakers primarily, or whether they're Spanish language speakers ending up in U.S. environments. Maya, I, I want to just ask, as you see all of those children, are there enough caregivers for them at the border? Specifically, you're covering the border. Is there enough caregivers? I mean, the question is, do caregivers have access to them? It's one thing to say, does a child who is with their parent um, outside of detention have a stable home? And it's another thing to ask whether a child who is in detention is receiving adequate care from the government. Um, and so um, there's a strong question as to, you know, in what part of the process is that child? Certainly because migration is irregular, because the people who are walking across Mexico or traveling in transportation across Mexico um, are not doing it in sort of a structured fashion where they have a necessarily a legal permit to do so, those children are going to experience all kinds of risks. Thank you for outlining those risks for us, Maya. Joining us from Mexico City, thank you. Thank you. Protecting Vulnerable Children is our theme today, and um, Michael Messenger is back with us, the CEO of World Vision. Let's now talk about the children in Mozambique, this horrific cyclone E-Day, perhaps the worst disaster uh, in the Southern Hemisphere in the last hundred years. How are the children coping? Well, you're right to ask about children because in any disaster, they are the ones that are most in need. They are always the most vulnerable. And they need immediate supplies to help them survive, like clean water, shelter, and food. But one thing we forget sometimes that we've learned over the years is that we also have to meet children and help them with their psychosocial needs. Wow. You know, kids have been ripped away from their family. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of families that have been uh, displaced or are homeless or are suffering devastation. And just, you know, uh, children are often the most vulnerable and are most affected. And so we also need to look and say, how can we provide some way of responding to them to provide some normalcy in their life? I've seen the play centers. I've been in them in Haiti that you do. Um, and yet cholera, like the disease, is, is, is this not life-threatening for these vulnerable children, for babies? What's happening with cholera there? Cholera cases are on, on the increase. There have been several thousand cases in Mozambique alone. You know, the, the, the cyclone hit Mozambique, Malawi, and Zimbabwe. And these are areas that World Vision has been doing child sponsorship in more than 15 communities, large communities, for many, many years. So Canadians would know some of these children. Absolutely. I've been to many of these communities, these affected areas, and have seen firsthand. They're already on the knife edge of survival. They're already at, at, at danger and risk. And so when a disaster comes on top of this, Everything we think is made worse. Kids that are perhaps not already getting enough to eat mm -hmm. are likely to go into acute malnutrition or, you know, they are affected uh, because of poor health systems that have been gone away. And most importantly, the first thing to close in a disaster and the last to open are often the schools. Wow. And schools provide places of protection. They provide, especially for girls, a place of safety. Okay. Um, we see the rates of child marriage going up in, in contexts like Malawi. So here we are again. I say this to myself, talk, talk, talk about the problems. And Canadians sometimes don't realize we actually can affect a family in Mozambique, in Malawi, in Zimbabwe. We actually can do something. Speak to the great pessimism that's out there, that my gift to a child through a child care agency works. Yeah. People are pessimistic. They think, oh, those are disasters. I can't do anything about it. And children suffer because of our pessimism. They... 
it's a legitimate question to say, is the money I give going to go somewhere uh, or just is it going to corruption or waste? The fact is when you give to a reputable organization like World Vision, which has its own systems of, of support and ensuring that there's accountability, we know that the funds get there because we have a system of reporting back. But the most important thing, and I've seen this firsthand and you have and, and others who have come and seen our work on the ground, is that we've got stories of impact. We know, for example, that World Vision around the world, and not just in these areas, but certainly there, is providing clean water to, to children, one child every 10 seconds. Mm. And these are wells, these are, these are programs that we can point to and see the impact. All of these have a knock-on effect. Clean water in a community means that girls in particular don't have to walk for many miles to, to get to clean water. And so rates of uh, going to school increase, health mm. increase. And by staying there with, with organizations that are committed to working and walking with communities over the long term, we know that we can make a difference. Michael Messenger, the CEO of World Vision, thank you for reminding us that vulnerable children is part of all of our responsibility. We love the good work you guys do at World Vision. Thank, thank you. you. Still ahead, creating a better future for babies, how one group provides the comforts of home for young moms in need. Plus, the enormous challenges children face when born into poverty. United Way's Anita Kana on how we can help the health and well-being of Canada's vulnerable children. Well, Canadian parents have made a coast-to-coast -coast alliance for another group of children, vulnerable children, to create a blueprint for a national autism strategy. Margaret Spolstra works with Autism Ontario and these families. Why the need for a national autism strategy? Well, what we want parents to experience is that no matter where they live in this country, that as Canadians, they can get the supports that they need from the time that their child, a parent sees symptoms or characteristics in their children of autism, right through their adult years and into their senior years. So that doesn't matter where you live in Canada, that you can expect to be well supported and to be a contributing citizen. You know, there is something in the DNA of autism acti activists that you guys, the parents are passionate for this. What, what do they know about their kids and about the need to be spokespeople for vulnerability here? Families know what their children need. They want the very best for their children. And when they see what is possible, they see the potential in their children. And when the services or supports or education system isn't providing them what they need, they gather together and they get their voices heard. Because they are close to seeing what is possible That's in right. their children. So just help That's us right. understand autism. And there is, I don't know if the word uh, beauty is right for it, but mm. it's got a very unique characteristic for children in it, doesn't it? Well, the thing with autism is that it is such a complex, the, the characteristics are very diverse across, across a wide spectrum of abilities, of uh, understanding, but they all struggle with some degree of social communication and understanding, but at the same time, they bring such um, a perspective to life and their parents get to see that in them every day. What do we learn from children with autism? we learn another way to look at the world. 
Um, and sometimes, um, I guess the way I think about autism with the people that I've had the privilege of meeting for many years, they, they don't judge. Um, <laughs> they, you can ex take them at face value and they accept people often at face value. And so they are, um, that makes them vulnerable and amazing all at once because they're vulnerable to those social things that we say or don't say about what is expected in a particular situation. Um, and that person with autism it will take what you say verbatim at face value as truthful and not expect to be deceived or to have to look for that in a relationship. And that is, says something about people. And um, we could have a bit more of that in our, our lives. <laughs> you just ended this very exactly what I was going to say is, yes. Margaret, we could absolutely have more of that in our world. So thank you for helping us uh, understand a new national blueprint strategy is coming and for the passion that parents have for advocating for these vulnerable and yet powerful young voices. Thank you. Thank you. Well, here in Canada, one in five children are raised below the poverty line. And here to help us understand more of the impact of that poverty on our kids is Anita Kana of the United Way. Anita, uh, thank you. You're joining us from a conference where the United Way is learning how to help. What are the essential supports that children anywhere in the world need? Well, certainly childhood is the earliest and most important period of time for child development, brain development, behavior and health. And uh, when we talk about children in poverty, we need to remember that it is their families that are living in poverty, and that makes a really indelible impact on them in their lives. So uh, certainly children benefit when they have access to strong literacy programs, uh, quality childhood education, and, and have strong bonds with their caregivers. We also know that families benefit and can lift themselves out of poverty when they have good quality jobs, access to affordable housing, as well as access to affordable uh, quality childcare services and crucially access to community services that affirm who they are, are delivered without any, any kind of stigma or discrimination and really uh, work to support the family to meet their full potential. Anita, so are you saying a caution against if you're poor, you're not being raised well? Not at all, not at all. Uh, parents who are living in poverty uh, really do their best to shield their kids from the effects of poverty. That could mean a parent could skip a meal in order to make sure their child doesn't have to go hungry. It could mean they might work around the clock shifts for a week in order for their child to get that prescription medication. When a family doesn't have access to employer benefits, uh, the parent might well put their own health at risk. Uh, really, uh, you know, Poverty and the experience of an illness, job loss, or even the death of a parent is never the fault of an individual or a family themselves. We must look at the broader factors and make sure that all families and children have access to supports and services. One thing I love about the United Way, you sure. are the collector of the largest amount of gifts in Canada for vulnerable people. Over half a billion dollars Canadians pour into the United Way, but you actually need more than money, you're challenging all of Canadians to care for the vulnerable children in society. How do we do that when it's not just monetary? Absolutely, yeah. So we encourage people to give of their 
uh, time, their, their talent, as well as their resources to show their local love, to help lift up the community where they're living, to make sure everyone can reach their full potential. Anita, thank you for taking time out of your conference in Toronto to talk with us. My pleasure, Lorna. Still ahead in a battling world for vulnerable children, we take a great look to an alternative for vulnerable pregnancies that is changing the future one baby at a time. Well, another part of vulnerable children in Canada are those young moms who find themselves pregnant, alone, and even homeless. Nancy Romick is the executive director of a home for just such vulnerable mothers and their children. Nancy, help us understand what are all the circumstances that lead to, to women, young girls, showing up at the doorstep of a place like Shifra? It's multiple. Um, number one is a lot of um, dysfunction uh, within the family dynamic, uh, trauma, abuse, uh, neglect, um, lack of support, broken families. It's so many different factors that contribute to these young women that show up at my doorstep. And when their family structure has broken down and now they find themselves on the verge of being mothers, what are their hopes and dreams for these babies? Really, they're looking for a place to call home because at the point that I'm meeting them, they are homeless. So they are couch surfing, they're sleeping outside, they're sleeping in cars, they're trying to survive and trying to find shelter. Their big goal is obviously finding a home uh, where they can have their baby because unless they do have a home, their baby is at risk of apprehension upon birth. So what do we need for them, Nancy? What needs to make it better for tomorrow for these young families? We really need to change a lot. And I would say it stems from childhood. Um, when you have a young woman come into your home and she has 22 cavities in her mouth, and you ask her when the last time that she had been to the dentist was, and she says in grade two when they came and did a school check, I think that kind of tells the whole story. And you can just imagine, you know, everything else from there. So when parents don't do their job, their children become more vulnerable to, re to repeating the cycle. And yet here you stand as a shelter for young moms like this, trying to break the cycle. What makes breaking the cycle possible for these beautiful babies, for these beautiful girls? I would say it's really number one love and it's believing in these young women and giving them structure and discipline and teaching them. Uh, I have often been accused of spoiling my young girls. Uh, I call them my daughters uh, because they are my daughters. And they call you mom. I know that. I've seen this <laughs> firsthand. They yes. do. I teach them uh, what normal is. So their rooms are set up like princesses. They have beautiful comforters. The house has everything for them, from food uh, to all their needs, the prenatal needs, uh, um, shampoos, uh, the whole network sort of, and when I first started, it was difficult because we had none of these things. And right now we have that whole wraparound service. And you've needed 
the local community to care for these kids? And is sometimes adoption part of the option of care? Yes, Explain it is. Explain that, because adoption has changed so much in this country. It is. Uh, we work with a local adoption agency, so if a young woman decides or even has an inkling that adoption is the route for her, the way she wants to go, we call in the adoption agency, they meet with the young mom, and they go over everything with her. They explain how things work today. Nancy, um, I'm so glad that Schiffer's in my local community. There's probably one in yours too that you can help and volunteer with. Nancy, you've been part of showing us we're all part of making a better future for vulnerable children. I was once one. You probably were too. Get out there and make a difference for vulnerable children. There's a lot more on the agencies we featured here at Context Today. Check it out on our website and do your part of making a better Canada for vulnerable children and for children around the globe. Nancy Romick from Schiffer Homes, thank you very much. Thank you, Lorna. All right.